In this interview, I talk with Stephen K. Hayes, martial arts master and ex-security advisor to the Dalai Lama. We discuss Stephen's early interest in martial arts and his journey to Japan in search of the ninja. We learn about his training under the iconoclastic sensei Masaaki Hatsumi. Stephen then gives a detailed analysis of the Dalai Lama's skill in social engagements, as well as lessons learned serving in the close protection field. So, without further ado, Stephen Hayes. Stephen, you were born in Wilmington, Delaware in 1949 and raised in Dayton, Ohio. How did you first become interested in the martial arts? Well, you know, back in those old days, there was very little awareness of martial arts in America. Certainly no schools. There were a few schools, maybe some Japanese people in California or possibly New York. But, uh, you know, when I was small, I went to school and I saw other kids bullied or abused. And, uh, I mean, I, I didn't like that. But I didn't know how to fight. I didn't know how to do anything about it. And I made up my mind. I was going to learn how to protect other people, how to save other people. And uh, I remember I was about six years old. And there was a television show in the States called Lassie. It was about this collie dog. Uh, and they lived on a farm. And now this was like 19... 55, like just 10 years after World War II, they had a Japanese foreign exchange student who came to this farm area to live with them. And the bullies were kind of picking on this little kid and he used karate, judo to defeat them. And you know, I was just rocked. And uh, toward the end of the show, this kids relatives try to burn down lassie's barn and they get burned up themselves and this little japanese boy brings some herbal remedies that soothes them and oh man you know if there's something you can destroy evil and heal and help the good oh, i was on a lifelong commitment just watching that tv show why do you think you were so inspired in such a clear direction in terms of protecting people and uh, fighting injustice of bullying and, and so on? What That seems a very specific and clear um, inspiration to have at, at such a young age. Well, you know, I've thought about that a lot. You know, I'm 70 years old this year, and that was a long time ago. And... Uh, you know, my family, they were not like fighters or uh, in the army or anything like that. Uh, I really don't know. You know, I really don't know. Maybe it's some kind of old karmic thing. Uh, but you're right. I was very clear as a very young child. This is what I'm going to do. Oh, it took like 10, 11 years for me to find instruction in the martial arts but i was very clear uh don't know why don't know why was your interest in uh, spirituality and buddhism and that sort of thing also in play at that point in your life or was that something that followed on from your exposure to the martial arts 
Well, I think a little of both. As a small child, I was very interested in, you know, what we would call spiritual questions. Why are we here? Um, what is beyond this earthly uh, experience? Uh, what happens to us when we die? You know, as a little kid, I had these questions. So I was very active in our family church. You know, it was a Episcopal church. And, uh, uh, oh, I, I ran the, the young people's program. I had a little robe and I helped the priest. And uh, uh, I remember as a teenager talking with the minister one time and just asking, you know, these kind of questions. And, you know, the answer he gave me was, was really... Uh, really brilliant. Uh, he said, we don't know those answers. That's up to you and your faith and what you believe. We, we don't know those answers. But I was too young to accept that. And I was shocked because uh, I thought these were the major questions. And uh, so I became interested in exploring all religions. And then I got involved in the martial arts training in 1967, when I was 17. And so started to study some of the philosophy behind the Asian martial arts. And at that point, uh, my journey began. You know, it's really kind of, uh, up until I was about 17, I was, really like kind of what I call treading water. You know, I, I had some interests and I was doing things, but martial arts and Asian spirituality coming together, my life just took off. Uh, I really became you know, the real me at, the, at that point. Was there a moment where you, in, in a certain sense, left the Episcopal path of the Christian religion behind? Or was that conversation with your minister this the most significant fracture um you know I, I think it was very significant part of that conversation with the minister i i expressed my amazement i said you know i mean you went to seminary for four years um <laughs> i had this fantasy you know that going to seminary people would be discussing other religions and he said no he said it's like trade school, we learn how to perform weddings. We learn how to perform funerals. Uh, uh, you know, help counsel people. Uh, I said, you you didn't like learn anything about Buddhism or Hinduism or uh, you know Islam or anything like that. Oh no 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 no. no. He said uh, people can do that on their own, but that's not what seminary was about. Oh, I was shocked. I was shocked. Um, but I, I think it slowly, slowly kind of crept up on me uh, over the years as I would learn more and uh, discover more, prompted new questions. And uh, so I, it was like the old analogy. I finally get to the top of the mountain and I'm ready to look. I see another mountain there. <laughs> Climb up that one. Well, I'll see another one there. So I'm still looking. I'm still looking. You mentioned karma there. This is a little out of sequence in terms of your biography, but you've got, got a, quite a deep background in Tendai Buddhism and Tibetan Buddhism in particular. 
And of course, in in uh, Tibetan Buddhism, reincarnation is uh, a key theme, a key doctrine. Looking back, have you had any had any reflections about that? Well, you know, I think uh, in Asia generally, there's this sense of reincarnation. In the Western world, there's not so much. You know, some friends of mine, scholars, have told me that well, maybe original Christianity had a reincarnation in it, but various synods they had, they decided, no, we're not going to believe that. So, but I think that probably it's a very complex issue. You know, what we are as a human being, uh, you know, there's like a, a, a little kid version of reincarnation where my body dies, a little ghost comes out and is reborn in a new body and, uh, uh, a little kid version. And uh, I think it's probably a little more complicated than that. Um, you know, we are made up by, uh, they're the physical aspect of us. There are our feelings. Uh, I like this. I don't like that. I don't care about this. Uh, there's our reasoning. Why do we like this or don't like that? There's a kind of a, intellect, there's our uh, gathered habits that we have of thinking, habits of living that we don't even think they're habits. You know, we would say, well, any normal person would be that way. Uh, and then there's consciousness, uh, how we remember how we look from second to second and uh, uh, the consciousness changes and can be directed. So you have all of these things that make us up as a person. And when we die, uh, the analogy I use is sort of like a rope unfraying. So the physical goes where it goes and uh, feelings go. These things kind of all separate. And <clears throat> what part of that is reincarnated? What part of that comes back becomes the, the Western question and the eastern answer is well just sort of the memory of that rope as an, an entity uh, the the memory of us um something that isn't in those five they call them five skandhas or the five parts that make us what, what we are <clears throat> so i'm comfortable um being kind of at wonder about that. Uh, I don't have all the answers. Uh, I'm studying with teachers who have their approach. Uh, but I think that uh, as opposed to, well, no, when you die, you're just cooling meat in the earth somewhere. I, I don't choose to believe that. Uh, no, you only got one life, you live it. And when you die, you either go to heaven or you go to hell. <clears throat> I don't choose to believe that either. Uh, I'm just kind of that in between uh, this uh, idea of reincarnation. You went on then to study speech and theater at Miami University, Ohio, and you began attending their Tang Sudo classes. What was your martial arts training like at that time? And what was your intention in studying speech and theater? You went on. You went on, in fact, to to be in some movies and TV series in, in Japan later on, didn't you? 
<laughs> well, it's kind of <clears throat> a funny story. Uh, I had various majors that I thought I would like to do. And uh, so I thought maybe creative writing. I would do creative writing. So I took a creative writing class. And, <clears throat> you know, I'm a brand new student. The teacher was such an overwhelming uh, egotist, you know, and he would like ridicule everybody's papers and he had little pets in the class. I, oh, no, I can't do four years of this. And uh, so I, I, I write the way I like to write. Hey, 23 books later, 23 books later, I proved that guy wrong, you know. <laughs> Either or maybe international studies. I would try that. And, you know, it was the 60s and the, the professors were all like way, way over on the left. And I, I, I am a more of a radical centrist uh, than a left or right. And I thought, oh, I can't put up with these people. Uh, you have to give them what they want. And uh, so, hey, you know, when I was in high school, I enjoyed acting in theater things. So I'll give theater a try. And uh, I stayed there. <laughs> so that's kind of how I got into theater, you know, just sort of washed into uh, theater. But, you know, back in the 60s at a liberal arts college, uh, they taught us acting and interpretation and a uh, li little bit of voice work, but they nothing was taught about the practical applications. How do you get a job as an actor? Uh, how do you get an agent? Um, how would you look and decide whether a contract is a good contract or a bad contract? Um, well, nothing was handled. So I graduated and I'm ready to go out into the world. I had no idea how to get work in that field. So uh, uh, I went to work for corporate America. and uh, But I had four years of martial arts training, this uh, Tang Sudo. It's a Korean, uh, very hard form of karate. It's very different from the ninjutsu that I studied later on. Ninjutsu is a more fluid uh if some hard action is coming at us, we'll move a little bit where it, it is temporarily confused. And as it follows us, we're now in the center. This Tang Sudo is very different. Uh, boy, it was power versus power. And as a 17 year old, my first shot at martial arts, uh, I've wanted this since I was a tiny child. Uh, oh, I ate it up. You know, I went to multiple classes per day. My mother was terrified I would flunk out of college and, uh, you know, and she went to the bridge club with her lady friends. And, hey, what's your child studying? Oh, mine's in uh, pre-med, you know? Oh, my uh, child is going to be a dentist. Oh, my child's going to be an attorney. Uh, oh, Carolyn, what's your son doing? My son is majoring in karate. <laughs> she would say with, a little disdain, you know, and, uh, but I, you know, I really did kind of major in that. So I, I took those four years and, uh, eventually started a small 
uh, karate school. Uh, this is before I went to Japan. Uh, and I was in my early 20s. I didn't know enough to run a school. But the Kung Fu TV show was on. This about this Kung Fu monk. Uh, and uh, there was a popularity uh, uh, for martial arts. And so I did that for a few years. Um, but in the back of my mind, I knew that I don't know enough. Uh, they were making karate uh, a competitive sport. And uh, I wasn't interested in the sport. I was interested in how to shut down uh, evil people. And uh, the sportsman uh, had kind of a kind of a uh, typical male uh, individual sport oriented uh, kind of an ego and uh, uh, bravado early 70s there was a lot of drugs uh, even in the martial arts I was uh, kind of surprised and disappointed at that uh, there's some real martial art heroes that I could name that were you know, strung out on cocaine. And, uh, uh, I was really an oddball guy. Um, and, uh, so I eventually gave up everything and, uh, moved to Japan in the hopes I could find these ninja and, uh, study. But now I knew there would be like no way I could make a living doing this. Um, I thought, uh, but I had to do it for myself. I had to do it for me. I, uh, uh, so it took me further on my journey to Japan. What do you mean when you say you were an oddball kind of a guy? Well, you know, as a small child, I was spiritually drawn, uh, and I was looking for realistic. What do people really do in real fights? Uh, and how do I be one above that. And uh, karate was very stylized. Um, in those days, you couldn't, I mean, now we have MMA, where grappling and striking and uh, choking, but even MMA has a lot of rules in it, you know. So if a person has two hands on the floor, you can't knee them in the face. Uh, you can't attack the back of the neck or the spine. I mean, you had all, all these rules. And, uh, you know, these are all the things that a small, weaker, older person would have to do to win a fight. But they're against the law. They're against the rules. Uh, so I didn't really fit. And then my spiritual bent, um, well, it was very disappointing, to tell the truth. Uh, there were a lot of, uh, there, there were no old guys in American martial arts. Everybody was young. Um, and... Uh, there was kind of a wild lifestyle. I was looking for some sort of Zen trip, I guess. Uh, uh, it was kind of a wild lifestyle connected with it and uh, a lot of uh, raw humor and things that I didn't see any, any relationship to martial arts. But these were the people that I, I found in schools 
plus unrealistic technique, unrealistic technique. Uh, and people were really good at doing these unrealistic things. Uh, all of the stuff just added up to where, you know, I really felt quite, uh, quite alone. Uh, and, uh, nowadays there are white beards, you know, in American martial arts and, uh, and, uh, you know, things have tempered a little bit, but to be truthful, uh, still a little bit of an oddball guy in that my insistence on a spiritual background with very pragmatic martial skills, uh, they go hand in hand and uh, it's, it's worked well for me, for my life. At that time, you, as you, as you said, in the, in the 1970s, you left for Japan and you write, I knew I could not in reality become Hopalong Cassidy or Zorro but I was convinced I could become the ultimate black-clad operative. I abandoned America for Japan in my 20s and became an apprentice in the secret Tokugura ninja martial art I had read about in a James Bond spy novel in high school. And then you go on to say, if some scary thing went bump in the night, I wanted it to be me. <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> and what was it like arriving in Japan? And how did you find who would eventually become your main teacher, Masaki Hatsumi? Well, it was, uh, you know, just amazing. Uh, I mean, magical things, magical things happened. I had a little duffel bag. That's it. I moved to Japan with, I got rid of everything, my cars, my house and my school. I got rid of everything. And, uh, I started looking for this, uh, ninja teacher <clears throat> and, uh, I didn't realize at the time this would be akin to some Japanese getting on an airplane, coming over to America, looking around for Gotham City because he wants to apprentice with Batman. You know, I mean, oh, this is all in the past. This is all in the past. Um, uh, people didn't know where to tell me where to go. And uh, so then I was convinced, oh, they're keeping it a secret. You know, they're keeping a secret. And so I went down to this region called Iga, which is south of Kyoto, and uh, met the mayor. And uh, he explained how, you know, the politics, politics of the 1600s and on, and, uh, you know, the ninja families had died out. They had gone with a particular ruler to Tokyo, and this ruler became the shogun. And uh, he kind of tricked these ninja who were the kind of wild card enemies of, you know, the, the law and order forces. And he tricked them into joining and took them to Tokyo and kept them with a promise. Oh, I'm going to make you guys samurai. I'll make you samurai and you'll get samurai. Uh, rewards and payment and a couple generations later they'd forgotten they'd lost their skills so he said there's there's no ninja left and uh, so I had read about this uh, Masaki Hatsumi and so I found my way across Japan um, now this is the 1970s there were 
a couple of bullet trains, but I had to take little wheezy local trains uh, from here to there to, there to to get to this. And I remember I got off the train. It was very late at night, and uh, I stepped out onto the entryway of this little Noda City, Noda City train station. There wasn't a light to be seen. Everything was dark. And there were these like soy sauce, uh, soybean storage towers, because that's what this city is known for, the Kikoman soy sauce. And that was the first time I really felt this is a wild goose chase. And uh, so I turned around, I went back into the train station and little guys are working there and they'd never seen a foreigner before, uh, you know, so they were kind of peeking out at me. And so I asked them in my broken Japanese, you know, is there a hotel here? And they just all cracked up. Um, no, there's no hotel. Uh, there's some little inns. And there was a girl standing there and she said in perfect English, perfect English, she said, uh, yeah, there's an inn behind the railroad station. Uh, my boyfriend is coming to pick me up. We can just take you right there. Wow. Oh, okay. So I rode behind the train station in this couple's car and got to the inn and talked to this little old lady, innkeeper lady. I'm out in the middle of nowhere, Japan. I haven't got a clue what to do or where to go, but at least I have a place to stay for the night. And uh, so she asked me, she says, why are you here in Japan? And uh, <laughs> I told her, well, I'm here to learn ninjutsu. <laughs> and she, said, she just cracked up. You know, she just laughed. She says, in Noda City, you're going to learn ninjutsu. And I said, uh, yeah, there's a guy who used to study in Iga, and he lives in Nota City somewhere. Uh, and she says, who is that? And I said, well, it's this Masaki Hatsumi. And she goes, oh, no, I know Masaki Hatsumi, and he's not a ninja. He's a physical therapist. Well, I read that's what this guy did for a living, you know, a physical therapist. I said, oh, no, no, tell me more about this guy. And she says, well, no, he's not a ninja. And uh, I said, are you sure? And she, she says, yeah, his mom and I are we're, we're friends from childhood. Uh, I've, I've known this guy. And uh, I said, so you could, like, call him up? Oh, yeah, I can call him up. Uh, but he's not a ninja. And so she called him up and. He told her on the phone, well, actually, I am a ninja. <laughs> I, I keep it secret here in Nota City because nobody would believe it. And uh, I mean, can you imagine of all these little sleepy inns in Japan, I end up at this one where it's a childhood friend of the headmaster's mother. He said, oh, yeah, I'll come right over. So he came over that night and... Uh, we had a interview and uh, uh, I started my training the next day. Uh, <laughs> you blew his cover. Yeah, yeah. You busted the ninja. <laughs> That's very funny. Everybody knows he's a ninja.
Black Belt magazine described Hatsumi as wild, funny, unpredictable, and a cross between Charlie Chaplin and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And you've described him as an iconoclast who scrambled your brain. And you write that you found yourself having to constantly question if what he was teaching you was real, or if he was just feeding you a line because you were a foreigner and so on. What was Hatsumi like in those days and your relationship with him, both as a person and a teacher? Well, you know, he was in his 40s. Uh, so he's like 30 some years younger than I am now back in those days. But I thought I was in my I was 25. So I thought of him as, you know, this like wise, uh, intelligent guy. And, you know, I think I could talk so many stories about him. Um, and uh, but I think that, you know, it all boils down to he was he was the perfect teacher for me because he was so different, so different for me. Uh, whereas I would tend to go back on my old training and engaged um no nah, he would like disappear he'd be over here and uh, uh so there, there came a time when i would actually physically uh not do any of the skills that i had learned in karate and just like be a brand new beginner and that's what it took it was so radically different from what i had studied before and uh you know, I would ask him a lot of spiritually oriented questions. And uh, and even even in Japan, that was odd. All the guys were in their 20s. They wanted to learn, you know, pragmatic. I think they were looking, learn how to fight. But there's also this thing about Japanese in the 70s. You had three identifiers. You had your corporation. You wore a corporate pin, you had your wife and family, and you had your hobby. Some guys were photographers, some guys were mountain walkers, some were hot air, but you had those three things. And for a lot of the guys, studying this odd martial art was their hobby. You know, they were not like committed people from uh, the way back. It was, it was their hobby. It's what they did. And so... Uh, I would have a lot of questions and in Japan, you don't ask questions, uh, especially back in the seventies, you just do what the teacher says, but I was there on a limited amount of time and he knew the answers. And so I would ask a question and a couple of the Japanese guys would take me aside and say, Hey, don't ask questions. You ask too many questions. And I would go, Oh, thank you very much. Uh, sensei, you know, I ask him another question. The funny thing was, when I would ask a question, they would all shut up and listen. <laughs> you know, so I was like the sacrificial goat. Um, and uh, they would listen and they would get information. And the teacher was very happy to give the information. He was very happy. And I was asking constantly uh, pragmatic technique questions and they were practicing a very antiquated style of fighting. I thought, okay, well this, that's great. But you know, how about a boxer peppering jabs in a, in a cross? We never do that. And he had brilliant answer for this. Uh, and the other guys, you know, were kind of amazed. So I, I kind of think of, I brought out the best 
in this teacher because I was the odd guy asking all these uh, questions. And he was very generous with his time. Uh, there were a lot of times I would stay late after training just asking questions about some of the spiritual aspects, things that my fellow students uh, weren't that interested in. And uh, so he gave me a lot of information, a lot of things to think about uh, that way. And uh, so, you know, it was, a, it was a perfect setup. There were like 14 people training in this tiny little dojo. Uh, lots of opportunity to ask questions. And, uh, and uh, his own teacher had just died like a year and a half before. Now, this guy, Takamatsu, his name was, so Hatsumi's teacher, he was an 1800s guy. And uh, he'd been like in China and uh, China for Japan in the early 1900s was kind of the wild, wild east. You know, um, there were all these quasi government, quasi capitalist uh quasi-cultural spy-like organizations that were working uh, throughout China. And, uh, and this guy was a real battler. I mean, he was a real uh, fighter. And Hatsumi-sensei, Mr. Hatsumi, was like 10 years old during the World War II. So he, he never had been in the army or never been in war. And so I think he thought of his teacher as being kind of beyond his ability, you know, uh, his teacher had really experienced these kind of things that he was just studying in theory. And, uh, you know, he was, uh, pretty honest with me about that. Um, and, uh, so we had a lot of very interesting long into the night conversations while I was there. Interesting. So you had a connection with him that went, really rather beyond just a martial arts teacher. Because I forced it, um, you know, to say the other people, you know, and then after I brought out my first couple of books, the lid just went off. I mean, foreign people were just captivated uh, by these books. Um, you know, these were technical books by an obscure publisher in California. And I could, I didn't even have a job. Uh, I just got royalty checks. So, I mean, it was just very unusual. These books were so popular. Now I wrote stories in the books. Uh, you know, I'm usually, I was the butt of the joke of the stories, uh, and I really brought it to life. And, uh, you know, describe some of my frustrations and then it would turn around and uh, very unusual for a martial art writer. Uh, very, very unusual. And uh, so these books just took off and just hundreds and then thousands of foreigners just poured in. And, you know, the truth is they all wanted to be Stephen Hayes. They wanted the Stephen Hayes experience. Well, you can't do that. I did that. Now there are hundreds and oh, all these dojos and, you know, and some of my uh, Japanese friends were, uh, you know, I don't know that they liked the foreigners, but they would charge them 
silly amounts of money, silly amounts of money. And these foreigners would pay this money. And um, I don't know that they were really taught uh, a realistic approach. Um, but, you know, that's that's human nature. Uh, that, that's human nature. And uh, and not everybody liked me. Not all the Japanese like me. Um, uh, and that's fine, too. You know, they thought teacher was kind of crazy for teaching a foreigner. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. One of the guys I did like told me one time, he said, uh, yeah, a bunch of people were talking to Hatsumi Sensei. You weren't around, Heisan, but they were saying, you know, you should not teach him this. And, uh, oh, and they didn't charge me any money. You know, the other guys had to pay some money and, uh, so, and, and you don't charge him money. And so he's a poor guy, you know, he doesn't have money. And, uh, and he said, he'll, he'll, he'll pay us back later in his own way. And, uh, you know, I think I did that. I'm very proud of the fact that, uh, I made my teacher internationally famous, uh, and very, very wealthy, um, so uh, he made a right business decision uh, uh, in uh, having pity on this poor foreign guy. You know? Yes, people may or may not be aware. I think probably people are aware that your books were hugely popular at that time and did explode Hatsumi's reputation and a sort of fever, a ninja fever in a certain sense all around the world. Oh, that's, that's very true. You write here about your training. A curious thing happened in Japan. I'd expected to add new skills to fighting techniques I learned in the karate practice of my teens. But the strange thing in ninja training was an emphasis on the inner changes I was challenged to make. My ninja teachers did not pound me to become faster and stronger as I would expect in any conventional martial arts school. They urged me to pay more attention to what I felt. What was my attacker doing at any moment? And where did that put me? I must then change reality from within. What was the schedule like in those early days? Were you training full-time there? And what sort of things were you covering in terms of curriculum? Mm. <clears throat> well, no, I wasn't training full-time. We would train uh, Wednesday nights and Saturday nights and Sundays. And so there was a lot of downtime and I had to work. Uh, so I got jobs uh, doing uh, TV and movie work. I, I even had an agent uh, who got me jobs and uh, uh, I did uh, some English uh, back in the, it was, everything was analog back in those days. There was nothing digital. And so companies like Canon, I did a lot of work with Canon and with Sony. When they brought a new product out, they would record um, a voice describing this and they would send out little slides, you know, and these would go all over the world. And so I was the American voice of Canon. Um, and, uh, uh, so I, I did these things and, uh, um, that took up a lot of my time. Uh, and as far as the actual curriculum, uh, the Hatsumi sensei, Mr. Hatsumi in those days, he had inherited all these books and scrolls and he was just going through this and the way he had been trained by his teacher for 15 years, just rapid fire, one technique, one 
you know, we call them kata. Uh, it's a, a, a pattern. This guy throws a punch, you interrupt the punch, you throw this back. And so we would just fly through these things. And, uh, you know, the idea was to get kind of over your head to where you were just responding uh, with this kind of technique. And this was very different from what I had experienced in like 10 years of karate training in America. You know, there was a given objective and we practiced this and we got better and better at it. This was almost the opposite, overwhelming. What is this person doing? Uh, so in the karate approach, uh, this person's hitting me in the face. So I'm going to knock this away and I'll hit him in the face. Um, ninjutsu is very different. He's trying to hit me in the face. So I'll let him hit. I'll let him hit. My face just won't be there. So now for a moment, this guy's a little confused. I should have had resistance. I should have impacted something. I got nothing there. And, and this guy's standing like over here now. So in that split second where that person turns their attention to follow, it's so easy to intercept with the right kind of technique. Uh, so it's very easy for me to describe it here, uh, but that was a major you know, change to my way of thinking and uh, operating. And uh, so I think that was the real gift that I got from uh, – that ninja fighting, uh, that way of viewing things and dealing with opposition, uh, dealing with conflict, dealing with uh, confrontation. Uh, I can throw it back in such a way that the person is a little confused for a moment. Um, I think that's the biggest lesson. And, and, and even today, that's what I teach. Now, I use a basis of realistic self-defense. What are people going to really experience? So, oh, man, hours of watching YouTube videos. What? How do people attack each other? I mean, you know, it's a – and you can see YouTubes from, you know, the Middle East and uh, China, Africa, U.S. You just type in guys getting beat up, you know, or something like that on there. And, uh, and over and over, I've developed a program that really relates to the most likely physical threats. And it goes through a beginner level and an intermediate level and an advanced level. Okay. As a beginner, what are the most primary skills may not be the most sophisticated, uh, but there are things you can do. Uh, you can build trust in those kind of things. And then intermediate, we start to add some more things. Um, and, uh, but at, but the principles were the ninja martial art that I studied back in the seventies. Uh, very, uh, very much keeping that alive. And after your visa ran out, you would return to the States and come back to Japan for shorter periods each year for the next decade or so. But your traveling was not only limited to Japan. You were having a conversation with Hatsume and he said to you, I teach how to protect people. For spiritual exploring beyond that, you'd have to go find monks back where our roots began. In China, I asked. Chigao Motomoto, he said, waving his hand to suggest vast distance. No, further. Even more further, 
beyond the mountains west of China. And in the mid-80s, you travel to India and the Himalayas in search of the Dob Dob monks. What were you looking for there, and what did you find? Well, you know, I think, uh, again, these two root questions, spirituality and, and practical fighting. So I got to Tibet, and I, <laughs> I found out... Uh, so anyway, these Dop Dop monks were supposedly tough fighters and uh, uh, that had been there before China invaded. And uh, so in Tibet, I found out you know, that these mon monasteries were huge communities and not everyone was a holy man. Not everyone was a scholar. There were like cook monks. They just cooked. They wore monk robes and, uh, you know, maybe at the evening they would say these chants or whatever. There were accountant monks. Uh, there were carpenter monks. And because uh, every family would donate one son to the monastery. And so they ended up with a bunch of these kind of rebellious, tough guys. And uh, so they put these guys in charge of security for the monastery because there were, you know, herds of bandits running around. And, uh, uh, so these were really tough guys. And so they were, they, the keys were big iron, you know, didn't look like our keys. Uh, you know, they had carvings and you'd put that in the lock and turn it. And, uh, so they would carry these keys on long leather straps and, uh, have it balled up in the hand at, throw that thing around and catch somebody on the side of the head, like three feet away. That looked like our ninja, what we call kusari fundo, a chain weight. And the way they would use those is very similar. And, uh, you know, they didn't, a lot of them, they didn't carry knives. Some had knives, but they would have these like huge, this big around, almost trees as walking sticks. They'd throw these sticks up on their shoulders and swing these things around and uh, uh, get in brutal fist fights. And uh, so if a, a monk had to travel from this monastery to another monastery, they'd get a couple of these dumped up guys to go along with them. And, uh, <laughs> but they didn't exist anymore. Uh, like so much of Tibetan culture, it was kind of lost when the monasteries were decimated and, uh, you know, now pretty much just, uh, scholars. And in fact, in the early fifties, late fifties, uh, a lot of Tibetans really doubted. They thought this is it. It's all over. Um, uh, our Buddhism, you know, it's just going to go out into the world and dissipate. They had no idea that the Western world would embrace them, you know, so, uh, thoroughly. Uh, so I, yeah, I went to Tibet for, uh, in 1985 and also again in 1986 and, uh, uh, so many stories, you know, so many stories of what I experienced there. Uh, but toward the end of the 1986 visit, I said, you know, is it possible to meet the Dalai Lama? And, uh, I was in this Dharamshala, the hill station where he lives and they said well uh he's gonna he's in new delhi 
and he'll be in New Delhi and then he's leaving on a plane. Uh, so if you can get to New Delhi, maybe you can meet him. And uh, so I got down to New Delhi and found this hotel and uh, was in there. And there were all these security people. I go, oh, gosh, you know, His Holiness has a lot of security people. And he's, oh, well, he, he does. But these are with Mr. Gandhi. What's that? You know, the president of India, uh, Rajiv Gandhi, is in talking with the Dalai Lama right now. Well, I'm thinking, I'm this guy who writes books on how to be a ninja, you know, from Ohio. I'm, oh, gosh, I got to follow Rajiv Gandhi. And they said, well, you can only spend a little bit of time with him because we have to get him to the airport. He's he's flying to Assisi to meet the Pope. <laughs> so I'm, I'm wedged in between Rajiv Gandhi and the Pope. And, uh, but he was very, uh, you know, this is before he'd gotten the Nobel Peace Prize, but people held him in very high regard. And, uh, you know, so many questions I had, and he had a lot of questions for me as well. And uh, as a result of that, I found out his older brother lived just a couple of hours away from me over in Indiana. He was a professor of uh, Tibetan language and culture. Uh, he said, yeah, you should look him up when you go back. So I went over and many stories there, but we became very good friends, became very good friends. And uh, uh, over the years, now he's since died, but, uh, you know, just amazing story. You know, this martial art guy from Ohio, uh, so involved. And, you know, when I was traveling as his security escort, I mean, I... I would decide which of his family was allowed to visit him. I mean, it's just unbelievable uh, the amount of trust, uh, responsibility they gave me. And I, I always did my best, uh, you know, to live up to that. It is a very fascinating series of stories there about your meeting and then ongoing association with the Dalai Lama. And that first meeting was one part intel briefing and one part spiritual transmission in a sense. You write here, Our first meeting started with His Holiness asking what I had seen in Tibet. He questioned the positioning and activities and demeanor of the Chinese military occupation troops. Were they older seasoned soldiers or younger recruits? How well did the uniforms fit? Which direction were the military trucks traveling most of the time? Were many Tibetan people in the streets? Were they walking slowly or quickly? I did not expect such questions, but gave my best answers. In the probing interrogation by the exiled ruler of Tibet, I felt like an intelligence agent being debriefed by a king. And the second part of the interview took a very different turn. You were wielding a... like this, wasn't it? Yes, uh-huh. A dorje, and, and through some instinct or other, through your time in Tibet, you've been touching it to the... Uh, various holy places you've been to and you were telling him about that and as you began to tell him about that suddenly you ran out of words and you write here his holiness the dalai lama continued to look at me in total silence his eyes radiated a quality i might have called deep knowing ever so slowly he reached out gripped my right hand and squeezed my fingers tightly around the dorje seconds passed but moments froze no words no need for words no thoughts beyond need for thoughts what was happening why? What was happening in that moment there? Hmm. You know, I might go back uh, to the original comment I made 
when you asked why I was so interested as a little boy in martial arts, and I just said, uh, you know, maybe some karma, you know, maybe uh, some rekindling. I mean, it seems kind of preposterous to say it, but, you know, maybe there's some connection through various lifetimes, something like that, maybe something he could understand that I was not prepared to understand at the time. Um, some strange kinship. Would you say that was what you would call mind-to-mind -mind transmission? Was that what we're talking about? You know, I think possibly it was, but I was so... Uh, I mean, just, just naturally humble. Uh, I was, uh, you know, not thinking in terms of uh, what this relationship could be. I just thought it was my one time in my life that I got to meet the Dalai Lama. Um, he may have other feelings. Uh, he may have had some other knowledge. It's amazing. All the people he meets, he remembers them. Um, and, uh, you know, I was with him several times where he would uh, run into somebody and he'd say, oh, yeah, back in 1956, we met in New Delhi. And Dalai Lama would say, oh, yeah, you had this little yarn ball that you kept, you know. I'm just amazed at his clarity of memory and uh, knowledge of uh, people. Um, so there could have been something that beyond me, you know, in 1997. So a couple months later, just a couple months later, he came to Bloomington, Indiana to visit his brother and uh, my wife, Rumiko and I, we went over there and uh, finagled our way into a, uh, uh, press conference and, you know, like 1980s giant cameras were everywhere and people taking pictures and <clears throat> they were from all across the world press. And they said, okay, his holiness will speak for one half hour. And, uh, so Rumiko and I, we were sitting at the head table cause all these cameras were up behind us. So, you know, we're looking at all of this and, uh, uh, I just wanted to hear what he had to say. So he spoke for one half hour and I mean, boom, at a half hour, he was done. Oh, thank you very much. He says. And so he comes around the podium and Rumiko and I are sitting there and then there is a line of Indiana state troopers that are going to escort him out. And, uh, so he goes around these troopers and he's like coming over toward the crowd and I'm in the way, you know, I'm kind of there. And uh, so I kind of move over to the side because he clearly recognizes someone he wants to say hello to. So I'm trying to like get out of the way. I move over and he moves over. <laughs> I move over and he moves over. You know, what seemed like hours was just a couple of seconds. All of a sudden I realized he's coming over to say hello to me. And <laughs> so he finally reaches out and grabs of my hands and and laughs i'm a total loss for words and he looks over at my wife and i still can't say anything and she says uh, 
I, I, I'm his wife. <laughs> and he laughed and, oh, you know, then kind of the spell was broken and we could talk for a little bit. But I was stunned. Uh, he remembered from this strange uh, interview that he had with me before he met the Pope in Assisi and uh, just kept holding on to my hands the whole time. And, uh, you know, it's quite... Get a little emotional, even telling about that right now. Uh, very significant, very significant, but totally off the charts, you know. What's the feeling as you describe that? Very honored. Very honored. I always felt very honored. Uh, so I had... Uh, I, I didn't have any money worries back in those days. I had so much money coming in. Uh, so I donated my time. They didn't pay me. Now, the sponsors would offer to pay me, but I will always turn around and say, no, just use it to, you know, do your goals. Um, but I was there to protect him, but I got so much, I got so much out of it in return. Yeah, and I was always very, uh, very honored. I think that's the word uh, I felt honored, just to be in his presence. You know, and they call him the presence. Uh, Kundun, Kundun, the presence. And uh, you know, he really is. Uh, he's, he really is a, a, a presence. You went on to function through various... Uh, it's a very interesting story, actually, but I don't think we have time for it now. But you went on to... Function, as you said, as the Dalai Lama's protection escort, security advisor, particularly during his visits to the United States. Something very interesting. You you had to develop protocols to counter any th security threats without looking too intimidating at the same time. What were those sorts of protocols? What sort of lessons did you learn there? And what insights did you gain from that period of time in, in the close protection field? Well, the like he had Tibetan bodyguards. Uh but they didn't speak a lot of English. And so when they were in the States, I mean, they stayed around him, but I was the guy who interacted with everybody and they would just kind of look over at me and I would take over. And uh, I think one of the things, cause I, I, I couldn't show a badge. Uh, I'm just a civilian as far as somebody really wanted to push it. You know, it's just my presence versus their presence. And uh, so <laughs> what I would do, I always had on a suit tie and uh, there'd be somebody that would like be backstage and they're not supposed to be backstage. And, you know, everybody always has some fake. Oh, yeah. Well, he told me to come back. And uh, uh, so they would see me coming and you could just see them bracing and getting ready for this and i would put out my hand and say oh thank you so much thank you so much you know and they were a little confused oh thank you so much i appreciate so much you're supporting the work of his holiness this is so important that we get the word we americans get the word out. you know i put my hand on his shoulder holding his hand turn him around aiming toward the door oh thank you so much now tell everyone that you see tell everyone that you see yeah you were welcomed you were and and we're counting on you i opened the door put him out and uh, 
Never had to, <laughs> never had to beat anybody up or uh, you know shoot anyone or anything like that. Uh, but that was that was like one one of my uh, uh, tactics that uh, I developed when uh, protecting his holdings. He's known as as being quite a statesman, quite an expert in a sense at steering or directing interactions, conversations with all sorts of different people who often see him on stage uh, or in meetings with people, and they, they're neutralized. Their particular angle or their particular um, rankings and so on they seem to get neutralized somehow by these sorts of subtle maneuvers that you're talking about. Did you witness that sort of thing? Oh, yeah, all the time. Um, uh, he uh, will, like, reach out and hold people's hands. Now, this is done in India, I mean, men will walk hand in hand and nobody, I mean, it's not sexual or anything like that. You know, they just, just natural affection. And we in the States you know, are a little backed up by that. Uh, and maybe certain other countries a little backed up by that. And uh, so he's meeting some official and he'll come out and just grab him by the hand and they're immediately reduced to like a little boy. And people, even People who questionably, do you respect him or not? Uh, his reputation precedes him, you know, and so they'll hold his hand and uh, uh, and he just walks holding their hand and uh, nobody would hold this guy's hand. You know, he's the iron fist, uh, you know, so I think that's one thing that he does. Um, he... Uh, uh, loves to like tug on beards, you know, so, you know, you and I, you know, we would get a friendly little tug, you know, he just tugs on that and laughs and, uh, you know, and that throws people off. And, uh, and he has a knack for making frivolous little jokes. Uh, you know, things get a little too heavy. He'll make some, you know, kind of funny statement and, Oh, everybody kind of laughs and they don't know what to do with that. So these are all tactics, you know, that uh, uh, I've seen him do. You know, one time I was in India and uh, uh, very much in the South. I had to get an Indian visa and a special another like whole visa permission to go to this area of South India. They just don't let tourists in there. And uh I was there with his nephew, so his older brother's son. And uh, older brother had had a stroke, a series of strokes. Now, he was supposed to go. I was supposed to accompany him, but he couldn't make the trip. So his son and I were going to go tell the Dalai Lama what happened and uh, kind of give him a lowdown. And uh, his son warned me, he says, now, in India, it's a little different. It's, it's, it's going to be different here. And I said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. And... Uh, so, uh, oh God, there were like 12,000 people in this temple that they were dedicating. And we could hear these long horns, you know, and he, oh, wow, he's, 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 he's coming. That's what those horns mean. And, uh, there was a lady, a very wealthy, very wealthy lady who had a small chain of hotels that, you know, she's from Philadelphia and she'd met the Dalai Lama before in America and, uh, so he 
came in and, oh, you know, this parade of people and he's walking very upright where normally in the West he, he bows, you know, down like this, but he's walking very upright and, uh, everybody's kind of, oh, they, they get down <laughs> and this lady makes kind of the noise you make when you see a cute little puppy scene, you know, kind of, oh, oh, you know, <laughs> people are looking at her. What are you making this puppy noise for? This is the king. Yeah. And, uh, he walked through and it was very different, very different. And, uh, um, even I was questioning it, you know, wow, I've been around this guy for 12 years and, uh, He's acting like he barely knows me. And, uh, uh, oh, I'm seriously questioning this. And then a few months later, he came back to the U.S. And, oh, you know, he's so friendly. And, uh, you know, I really got it. No, no. For the Tibetans, these poor people, you know, uh, had their country occupied and their religion thrown out. They're, they're not even allowed to teach Tibetan in Tibet. You have to study Chinese. You know, the Chinese bring Chinese workers in and they get the good jobs and they get tax benefits if you go to Tibet. In China, the Tibetans, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's very tragic. Uh, so he's their king. You know, he's their one hope. Maybe, maybe there's hope. And so he's very much the king, you know, he's very much the king when he's around in those roles. When it comes to the U.S., uh, you know, we're pretty mouthy in the U.S. You know, we got opinions and uh, here's this ruler who doesn't even have a country. Um, what are you talking about? So, oh, he's very humble, jokes around. So nobody's going to call the Dalai Lama on being a, you know, nationless ruler uh he knows how to do that he knows how to present himself um uh very remarkable i mean to be that tuned in because he certainly was not trained in how to do this um for the first 20 some years of his life when he was the dalai lama of tibet uh uh yeah it's very uh amazing so learned a lot of lessons learned a lot of lessons from uh, the Dalai Lama as well. You're, you're, you're giving a, a very interesting analysis there of, of, of some of the, of the ways in which he presents himself, some of the strategies that he uses in these uh, interactions. I have read that the Tukus are sometimes trained to receive visitors, uh, trained to function essentially uh, in, that, in that role as the head of the lineage or the head of a monastery or in the Dalai Lama's case, the, the head of a country. And they're trained in certain ways to bear themselves and ways to present. But you're saying you don't think he was trained, actually, and that he must have just learned that on the job. What do, you, what, do you have any comment on that? Oh, yeah. Uh, in Tibet, I mean, you weren't allowed to make eye contact with him. Uh, you know, people would bend down and they would, like, give presents and he would be up on this very high throne and uh you know just touch them like with uh scepter kind of a thing and uh and of course they had an entire organization of uh protocol monks you know everything was done you know a certain way and uh um 
So even after he left Tibet, if he stayed at a little barn and slept there, they had to turn the barn into a shrine. And uh, uh, so they taught him how to be uh, regal, uh, but they didn't teach him anything about, oh, hey, now when you're dealing with smart alecky Westerners and they're, they're making off the wall jokes, here's how you handle this. And if you're dealing with, uh, you know, autocratic dictators, you treat them this way. He had no training in that at all because no one saw what was coming uh, to Tibet. Uh, Tibet had just like remained isolated for so many centuries. They thought they could ride it out. And uh, oh no, oh no, Chinese uh, wanted, I mean, just the minerals in Tibet and the wood in Tibet and, you know, that buffer with the Western world and, uh, uh, oh no, Chinese are not going to ignore Tibet. They just came pouring in there and <clears throat> the Tibetans, you know, the army had, had, uh, matchlock guns. They have a little rope that's on fire and it goes down and sets, <laughs> against Chinese, you know, cannons and tanks, and uh, they didn't stand a chance. And uh, so, uh, yeah, but nobody taught him how to do that. Nobody uh, taught him. He uh, taught himself. He learned himself. He was that, he was that perceptive. He was that perceptive. How did that impact the way to come full circle, the way that you uh, teach the martial arts or the way that you teach people to deal with conflict and their and their life situations because I think it would be fair to say that your martial art that uh, you you founded Toshindo is yes it's about the physical and the practical conflict but also you emphasize a great deal uh, conflict management in all other sorts of situations the workplace uh, in, in, in family or, or in day-to-day -day encounters how did your time with the Dalai Lama influence the formation and teaching of, of your martial art one of the things he is a master of is uh, just connection, connection with other people. Um, and, uh, you know, he'll look into people's eyes and he'll really listen to what they're asking. And sometimes he can tell what they're asking isn't the real question. And he'll just skip what they're asking and go, answer the real question. And uh, <clears throat> I think that that's one of the skills maybe I picked up in all those years of uh, traveling with him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'm trying to think how to phrase it. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm a little bit famous uh, in martial arts circles, and uh, so there are these conventions we go to, and you know I watch some other famous people, and you know they'll kind of strut around and uh, answer people very quickly and move on, and uh, you know that's not fun. You know I I really want to hear from people. You know, let's get over the little polite chit chat. What, what do you really want to ask? What are you looking for in life? What are you looking for in life? Can I help? What are you looking for in life? And can I help you in some way find it? You know, and I think that's my attitude 
and uh, uh, and so I carry that out in my uh, you know appearances and uh, when I'm uh, working with people, even my own close students. You know, that's really it. What are you looking for in life? What a lot of people don't know what they're looking for in life. They don't know. They just, you know, you get up in the morning and the water runs. Oh, that's great. And you have breakfast and you go to work and you're busy and you have problems and you solve them. And, uh, and that's life. Just you're going to do this till you die. I mean, just for fun, use your imagination. Take responsibility. What are you looking for in life? Um, what is going to open your eyes? Uh, what are you here to do? What are you, what are you supposed to be singing? What's your song? Uh, do you know what your song is? And and that's your gift to the rest of us in the world. And if I can help you find that a little bit, I'd be delighted. Um, I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve. And uh, but I think I picked that up from my. Uh, years of being around the Dalai Lama because he very much radiates that. That's that's so fascinating. Is there anything you'd like to say before we close out the interview? Well, no, I really enjoyed this. You know, you're a great interviewer. You're a great interviewer. Yeah, you had some questions I've never really thought about before. So, uh, you know, I had to, had to think for a moment to come up with a good answer. So that's always, that's always great. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, I think that uh, maybe I would say to people, um, what are you, you heard my story. I didn't get to hear yours. All the people who will listen to this, I didn't get to hear yours. So in what way can you tell your story? Maybe it's a blog. Maybe it's a vlog. Maybe it's a book. Maybe it's just how you deal with people every day. You know, what's your story? What's your story and uh, are, are you proud of your story? Uh, how far along is your story? Um, maybe you haven't started yet. Uh, uh, what is your story and uh, how can we increase this kind of wonderful, I mean, isn't technology beautiful? You couldn't have done this so many years ago. And now here we are, you're in Australia, I'm in Ohio. and. People are going to be watching this all over the world. How wonderful that is. Let's take advantage of that and uh, uh, be proud of our stories and, and use them to inspire other people. Wonderful. Stephen, thank you. Hey, thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another Guru Viking podcast. For more interviews like these, as well as articles, videos, and guided meditations, visit www.guruviking.com.